0: All right, this morning, please take your Bibles and turn to John 10. Actually, I'm going to tell you, turn to John 9 and 10. And right now, you're going to go to your Bible, and you're going to be like, man, pastor, that's a lot of material. <laughs> yes, it is, absolutely. And so I hope you're ready to hold on. We're going to work through this today as best we can as we continue to fix our eyes on Jesus. Uh, for those visiting with us, we are in this study, this journey of looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we're clearly exhorted to do that. At times when our faith is tested, so which is all the time. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's what we're doing right now. So through the last three months now, we're going to continue on for another month and a half or two, taking us into the Christmas season. It's kind of extended a little bit. Uh, what we're doing is just taking different... Snapshots of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the Lamb of God. Today is this one. As our faith is tested, we must fix our eyes on the good, good shepherd. I hope you're ready to be encouraged this morning as we see this good shepherd unfolded. What comes to mind, though, when you think, you open your Bible and you think, I want to hear about the shepherd. Where are you going to go automatically? Say it out. Psalm 23, right? That's where we go automatically. We want to talk about the good shepherd. We're going to go there. So I'm not going to disappoint. I'm going to read it. You know this. But as I read through Psalm 23, would you do this with me? Not take phrases for granted. Because sometimes when we read through these portions of scriptures, we're like, yeah, I know that one. I got that one. I got that one. Think through every phrase, because what I want us to do today is to see Psalm 23, Isaiah 40, come alive in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This isn't just some remote Old Testament text. No, it comes alive in the way that Jesus himself interacted with people. So when Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd, there's meaning behind it. Psalm 23, would you, in your mind, think through this? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I'm going to say that phrase one more time because this is so important. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they what? Comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, symbolic of healing. My cup, it overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, what's the next phrase? All the days of my life. Okay, I want to, so you're like, man, you're going way out on this one. You're not even preaching on Psalm 23. Well, yes, we are. Because there's some key details to this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me some of the days of my life. No, no, no. All the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay, brothers and sisters in Christ, are you ready to see that come alive in John chapters 9 and 10? I hope so. Because I cannot get through John 9 and 10 without constantly going back to phrases in Psalm 23, the Good Shepherd. Maybe when you're thinking about these passages, your mind will go to Isaiah chapter 40. I mean, obviously Isaiah prophesying of the the Messiah to come, the suffering servant king, all of these in Isaiah. Isaiah. Our minds go to Isaiah 40, and maybe this is the passage that's on your mind. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. Get this? He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Okay, we're going to see all of the elements of that come alive and how Jesus handles himself and his personal work in John chapter 9 and 10. If these passages come to your mind, then you're not alone. And you're actually in a good place based on what's happening in the context of John 9 and 10. Any good Jewish follower of Yahweh, these passages would be coming to their mind. Just as they are are for us right now. But also remember this, historically. We talked of this a couple weeks ago. Historically, the shepherd role, even though it wasn't the most prestigious occupation, the shepherd role was one that was constantly keyed off on in the Old Testament into the New Testament. I mean, we talked of this briefly. Uh, When you look at how God used individuals to advance His sovereign plan, we're talking about, especially through the covenants He made with people, we're talking about Abraham and Moses and David as we walk through the covenants of the Old Testament. Every single key player in that. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses. Every one of them, at some point in their life, fulfilled the shepherd role. It was a big deal. Being a shepherd, this whole shepherd mentality, was key in the life of any good Jewish worshiper of God. Well, in John 10 as he is ministering and teaching in Jerusalem. We already kind of unpacked the context of this a couple weeks ago in John 8, remember this, where Jesus says on the highlight of the day of tabernacles, the last day when the, when the candles are going off and people are celebrating, this big time uh, Yahweh party all the way through the night, celebrating through lights, and Jesus stands up and says, hey, I'm the light of the world. This is that same context. All right, We are now at the end of the tabernacle feast, We're now working into some residual ministry from Jesus in Jerusalem. That's John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, Jesus in Jerusalem keys off on this concept of shepherd. And he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's directly in John chapter 10, verse 11. And then you go to John chapter 10, verse 14. He states it again. I mean, in this passage, John 9 and 10, we're going to see there's a lot of repeat happening. A lot of repeat statements. In John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. All right, so today we want to understand what Jesus is saying here in the next half hour, 40 minutes, in John 10. What is he truly saying about being a good shepherd? What does that mean? Well, in order to do that, we need to do a couple things. First of all, let's analyze a couple key terms. And by the way, John 10 is on the back. I couldn't get both 9 and 10 on the back. But John 10, and if you go to verse 16, I want to really just present two key words. John 10, verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And oh, Okay, quick timeout. I can't help myself, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're in the story. Right there. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Okay, that's you and me. All right, but there's a, there's a term that's introduced here. It's the first one there. It's called fold. And then he continues on and talks about another term. He says, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So right away, we need to talk about two key terms, and, I, and I'll be brief on this. Maybe this gets your interest ready to, to study some more this week, but we're talking about fold and at flock. What is the fold? Well, The fold is what you would see in the top side of this. It's a walled-end structure, an enclosed compound that keeps sheep from wandering or it keeps them at night from being attacked. Very simply, a flock. So there's a difference then between the fold and the flock. A flock is what you would see outside at this point. The flock is a specific group of sheep, what you might know as a herd, that would follow a specific shepherd. Now, this is important to note. At times, a fold would protect several different flocks. Do you understand that statement? You have a fold, and there in that fold would be several different flocks. And those flocks would be guided by different shepherds. Uh, the fold... And this story it is very important that we understand this. I'm not going to go in great detail on this, but the fold in this story, in this, what's happening with Jesus in John 9 and 10, the fold is metaphorically talking about national historic Israel in this story. The, con- the outward confines that brings all of these people together is their identification with the Jewish race, the Jewish religion. That is the outward confinement that holds them into this fold in this story. At this time in history, with hundreds of man-made, rabbinic, religious rules, restrictions, national Israel, that, that fold was characterized by a, mis, a misuse, a, a serious abuse, misunderstanding and mishandling of God's law. And right away in our minds, if you want to write down actually, you can write down Ezekiel chapter 34 because this is prophesied that there will be shepherds that come into the fold that are devious. They're going to be misleading. Historically, that is what's happening right here in this story. So we have the fold and the fold of national Israel there were essentially different communal flocks. We need to understand this. This is really good. These flocks, these herds, could be seen as people groups within Israel, if you want to go that far. And if we took it a step further, these could be best recognized by synagogues. Okay, please understand with me, this ancient Near Eastern context, all right? You, you would generally, if you could, once a year, even sometimes for some people, once in a lifetime, you would travel, do your pilgrimage to the temple. If you're a really devoted worshiper of Yahweh, you would try to go as often as you can. But in your community, and I will say this, even in Jerusalem, you will have a variety of different synagogues. That's where teaching happened, but, but it's beyond that. Please understand this. The synagogue was the center of life for the Jewish person. We're talking about financial deals were made in the synagogue. Relational deals were made in the synagogue. And we're talking about arranged marriages and things like that, which might not be such a bad idea. We'll just stop with that one. A lot was happening in the synagogue. Social identity happened with the synagogue. So, if you were part of this flock, this this synagogue, your life centered on that specific flock. So, we have the fold in this story representing Israel and different flocks, split groups characterized essentially by synagogues. You're on the same page with me on that? Okay, now, let's go. We, we want to jump right into John 10. We need to go to John 9. John, uh, in order to understand John 10, you have to understand John 9. Specifically, this story. Um, What's happening in John 9, Jesus is ministering, as I just mentioned, at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. He had already, very specifically, claimed to be the light of the world. He was drawing some to belief, and this is actually the theme of the book of John, one of the themes. He's drawing some to belief, but at the same time, he's stirring up others, primarily Jewish leaders. These Jewish leaders are continually becoming more and more and more infuriated, infuriated at Jesus Christ. His claims. What you see through the book of John is Jesus is clearly bringing out, and I'm just going to share the story, clearly bringing out his sheep into his flock. Well, with tension sky high, please understand what's the mode, what's the, the mood of John chapters 9 and 10? Okay, it is a high sky tension happening here. He miraculously escapes the temple after John 8 and we find him in this amazing story in John 9. So what we're going to do right now, I'm just going to re- take the next 5 minutes and read through John 9. Please follow through. I was going to try to just explain it, but it's so much better if I just read it. So you can look in your Bibles or you can listen. John 9, what's the story of John 9? Here it is. You're like, "What? I thought you were talking about a shepherd, not a blind man." This is key. So let's understand what's happening in John 9. This is the context. As I read, um, or, and as you listen or read along with me, I'll kind of interrupt it with some commentary along the way. But let's start in verse 1. John 9, verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, this is misguided co- theology, but not uncommon question in Jewish traditional thought or rabbinical teaching. Jesus answered, It was not this man that sinned or his parents, please catch this, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay, quick time out. Think about this. This man's entire situation in life, we don't know exactly how old he was, but we know he was was of age as as the story unfolds. His entire existence as a blind man was ordained for this very moment in John chapter 9, where Jesus would receive the glory as the Good Shepherd. This man went through some pain and some suffering, just like, and I'll say this in application way, just like many of us go through, we talked of last week. There's pain and suffering involved in our walk with Jesus, but it was to bring honor and glory to God Almighty. Amen. All right, let's continue on verse four. Um, verse four says, "We must work the works of Him who sent, or uh, who sent me." While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, and here he now ties it to chapter eight. I am the light of the world. We've already heard about that. We've already studied about it. So let's continue on to verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Gross. (laughs) But it's in there. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means "sent." So he went and washed and came back seeing. Okay, real quickly. Have you ever thought, why did Jesus do that? Why in the world did Jesus spit? in the mud, and, and make uh, like a little, a little ingredient of some sort and put it on his eyes. Why? All right, there's a lot of ideas why. I, th- I, th- I, think, I think there's one that makes the most sense. When is he doing this? He's doing this on the Sabbath. All right. As you think through the ministry of Jesus so far, he's done a lot of what you might know as like verbal miracles. Uh, he's speaking people into miracles. He's doing this type of things. Occasionally might be a touch of a miracle. What's happening here in John 9, I'm just going to say it. Jesus is intentionally kind of picking a fight with the rabbis, the Pharisees. I'm, I'm telling you, he, he is clearly turning this miracle into an action. Undeniably, he's sitting there, making a little, and then putting it on his eyes. He's clearly breaking these rabbinical traditions of the Sabbath. He's setting, as his key to the whole book of John, he's setting distinctions to his ministry and to those who will follow his ministry. Amen. We need, That was a longer commentary, so let's go, let's go back. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg?" Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, uh, no, I, I'm him. I'm the man. It's actually in the Bible. A dude says, I'm the man. <laughs> He's like, no, no, it's me. It wasn't him. It was my brother. It wasn't the guy down the road. It was me. I can see. Verse 10, so they said to him, then how were you? your eyes open? Verse 11, he answered, well, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the saloon and, and wash. So I went and washed, and man, I received my sight. Verse 12, they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Okay, this is a very honest answer. Think about this. Did this man see Jesus? No. He had mud on his eyes, and he was blind from birth. All he knew was, go to that pool and wash. He had heard a bit of his voice. Potentially, he had felt the touch of his hands on his eyes. He had not seen Jesus. Very honest answer. Okay, so now there's Jerusalem. Is the, the tensions high? And so, verse thirteen: They brought to the Pharisee uh, the, to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Verse fourteen: Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Did notice that verse? It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud. And opened his eyes. Verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I wash and I see. Verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, Oh, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such thing? And there was a division among them. And I want to just say, that is consistent with the theme of the book of John again. There was a division among them. Some believed, some didn't. <clears throat> i to find my place. Verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said... Well, he's a prophet. And, and it's, that, with that answer, it's almost like there's a statement of questioning. This guy doesn't know. He doesn't know who this Jesus is. This hasn't been unfolded, as we'll see later in the chapter. It's almost like there's a, a hint of sarcasm to this statement. Oh, he's a prophet. Verse 18, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. They, they refused to believe um, until They called. The parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked, verse 19, Is this your son who was who, who who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Yeah, that's the truth. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor we do we even know who opened his eyes. We don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Okay, another quick timeout commentary here. All right? Uh, These people are on edge, his parents. You would think if your child received sight, you would be like, whoa! You'd be stoked out of your sandals. You couldn't contain yourself. But this leads us back to the thought, the truth that in this context, life revolved around the center of that life was the synagogue. And so they had a fear about this. They wanted to be very careful about how they talked about it. So would you read with me verse 22? It explains it. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. In essence, the Jewish le- For the Jewish leaders had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus as the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Okay, brothers and sisters. This was pretty much other than uh, death. And even maybe even beyond death, because you're living through it here, this was the worst cultural discipline for any Jewish person is to be put out of the synagogue. You've been disowned. So if the synagogue was the center of your financial, your social, every resource you have in your life and you were taken away from it, you cease from life. What are you going to do? Verse 23. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. We're going to put it right on his shoulders. Verse 24. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner, referring to Jesus. He said, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I can see. They, say to, they said to him, "What did he do to you? How did he open his eyes?" He's already answered this question. Verse 26. on verse 27, he answered them, "I have told you already, and you would not listen to me. You would not listen. Why do you want to hear him uh, hear it all again? Okay, this is in my, in, my mind, in my mind, I was watching some of the press secretary this week, Kaylee Mac- McKenney. you watch her? And she's like, "I already told you the answer. You guys watch that this week. I already told you, and you keep asking the same question. Now, this is this dude, reminiscent of this tension. I already told you guys, I was blind and now I see. Um, and then the next statement makes me laugh almost every time I read it, because he goes from this like tension to this straight sarcasm. Here he says, "Don't you also, do you also want to be in?" asking. Oh, man, that just threw a rock in the bee's nest. Because verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why is this an amazing thing? You do not know where he comes from, and yet I can see right here now he starts to mingle sarcasm with some observation, some, some really, I mean, basic observation. And it kind of transitions into a bit of an instruction mode to these Pharisees. Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He's telling this to the Pharisees. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And you would teach us? Okay, in our minds right now, we got to think. Remember what the fold is. It's this outward uh, identification with Israel. And these inward teachers, these misguided shepherds are trying to get these people, misguiding them through information. And now they tell him, and we just need to continue on with the text, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and, you, and would you teach us, verse 34, and then the phrase that has pretty much the most weight in this entire passage is this, and they cast him out. Okay, now what is Jesus' response? Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, I can almost not get through this without crying because this is systematically the best and worst day of this blind man's life. He could now see something that had not happened since he was born. He can see colors. He can see all the mess of the world around him. He can see faces and instead of touching their faces, he can actually visualize them. He sees his mom and dad. And the day that's the best day in his life is also the day that's Kind of like the worst day in his life because now he has no life. He's kicked out of the synagogue. But Jesus found him. And Jesus said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered in a very respectful way. Remember, he doesn't recognize Jesus talking to him. He doesn't know who this is. And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Another another honest question. Jesus said to him, You have seen him. Those eyes that were just healed, they're fixed on the Son of Man right now. And it is he who is speaking to you. Oh, I love verse 38. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He became a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him, they're easing in trying to hear this. They said uh, to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Okay, there's, there's so much to this story. But you cannot, we cannot comprehend John 10 until we've read John 9. This is the shepherd life lived out. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. What's just happened? Well, for certain, this blind man, simultaneously the best and worst day of his life, received sight. Very simply, if you think about the story in John 9, he could not fulfill what is said in in, in Psalm 23. Remember the last phrase of Psalm 23, would you? With me? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. forever. Amen. He couldn't. This man's life was turned upside down. But the shepherd found him and called him out. And he said, you're mine. Amen. I don't know, brothers and sisters in Christ, this doesn't encourage our souls. Something's wrong. This is the exact same thing that Jesus has done for every single one of us in this room. We have called to Jesus by grace through faith. So, with John 9 as the clear backdrop in in mind, and by the way, I was intending to spend a little over half the time setting it up, and then quickly we'll work through these other ones, so we will not be here till 5, but what I want us to do right now is look at some clear distinctives of this good shepherd from John 10, and it'll be quick, so hold on tight. As the good shepherd, first distinctive we're going to look at right now is Jesus knows his sheep intimately. Every one, of these, every one of these points, please keep in mind the story of John 9 and the blind man healed. All right, I mean, just think through this. John ten fourteen, this good shepherd who knows his sheep intimately. John 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Know means to recognize, to truly understand. There is clearly two-way knowledge going on here which would clearly identify a relationship. John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. If we continue on verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If we skip back to the beginning of the chapter, verses 4 and 5. Who has brought out all his own. This is what the shepherd has done. He goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not know, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. What's happening here in this text in John 10? Very clearly, the apostle John is writing this This story, 90 years later, after this happened, well, 60 years later, after this happened, and he's telling people there still is a good shepherd. And this good shepherd knows his sheep intimately. This is not a formalized production. It is all about a close relationship. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us get this into our minds. This is not a formalized production. This is a close relationship with the shepherd. This is not all about rigid, outward moralism. It is about a meaningful, inward relationship with the chief shepherd, the good shepherd. This is a relationship with God, the good shepherd, Jesus. Let's go to another distinctive, distinctive two. Let's hold on and go to another distinctive of this good shepherd. Clearly in John 10, as the good shepherd, Jesus loves his own sheep sacrificially. Revert back to John 9. Which one of these Pharisees could truly look at this man and say, I love you so much, I'm going to lay down my life for you? Not a single one of them. But Jesus enters into the picture, and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I just want to read through a couple of these verses, and as I read through these, notice the terminology, especially this phrase, lay down my life, or lay down his life. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is loving sacrifice. Verse 12, he was a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters the sheep. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, here we are, you and me, in the story. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Praise Jesus, brother and sister Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Resurrection prophecy. Amen. This charge I have received from my Father. What's the point? This relationship means something to Jesus. He's not just going around checking off, I healed a man that was born blind today, and that palsy's gone. Oh, yeah, I got, a, I got one of those lepers, too. And this, is, this is Jesus laying down his life in love for his sheep. This is not all about an outward, self consumed moralism, it is about an inward, gospel saturated relationship can we continue on with another distinctive here it is distinctive three is a good shepherd Jesus calls his own sheep personally let's get this John 10 verse 3 notice the words call and hear to him the gatekeeper opens oh, there's so much in this as well one of the characteristics of a shepherd a good shepherd the gatekeeper they go hand in hand we're not going to dig into that today the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep. What's the next two words? By name. name. And he leads them out. Brothers and sisters, this is so cool. You're not just one of many. Jesus knows you by name. Jesus has called you out by your very name. He even knows your middle name. And your last name. This is a Jesus, this loving shepherd who's beyond just a person. I mean, a figure, an image. No, I know that person's soul. Jesus knows our very names. Uh, Verse 16 continues on with this theme. Go back to this. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them out, and they will listen to me. Jesus is calling these Gentiles now. He's calling you and me. We're brought into the story, just like was prophesied to Abraham. Through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Families of the world will be blessed through the promise to Abraham. Jesus is living this out now. He's calling Gentiles by name. John ten twenty seven: my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Here's the point. This is real communication from a shepherd who really cares for sheep. He calls them by name. Again, this is a personal relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. Okay, let's do two more quick distinctives. Here it is. Number four. As a good shepherd, Jesus leads his sheep graciously. So it's, it's more than just calling his sheep. It's more than just loving the sheep sacrificially and just knowing about them. He leads them. I haven't been around a lot of sheep, but the sheep that I have been around, we used to go hunting up in the, mountain, the Rocky Mountains and a lot of hiking and backpacking. Every once in a while we, we'd come across these massive herds. And there's this guy in the back that's just watching them just kind of keeping an account. They'd hire, hire out shepherds, and he'd just kind of keep an account and try to keep them alive and shoot the coyotes and that kind of thing. And they'd have dogs that would chase. And there was not a lot of leading happening. It was kind of watching. I'm gonna say That is not the case for this ancient Near Eastern culture. No, the shepherd would walk before and lead his sheep. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I'm not just watching the sheep. I'm leading the sheep. We need to catch a grasp of this, that Jesus is the one who is leading us. Um, falling right in line with both Psalm 23 and Psalm 40. Psalm 23, twice we see that Jesus, lead, uh, that the good shepherd leads, who is eventually we find Jesus. Jesus leads his own sheep graciously. John 10, 4 gives us a clue to this. When he has brought us or brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow them for they know his voice. He goes before them, he leads them. Verses 9 and 10, as I just read or noted, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find nourishment, find pasturing. They'll be fed. Jesus is leading us to nourishment. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they would have, you know, kind of a cool life. No, that you would have abundant life. That is the purpose here of this shepherd. He calls us personally. He leads us graciously. Uh, two aspects, being led out and being led in. We need to note that quickly. Out of a formalized fold and into a personal relationship. This leading is also twofold. It's to eternal life. And then I believe as we take steps, which we, He brings us into this eternal life that we'll look at in this next point. He's guiding us through abundant life. No, not a life that's promised that there'll be no suffering as we saw last week. But a life that we know there's peace and there's joy because the shepherd's got us and he's leading us. Let's make one other point as we close this out. One the distinction. As the good shepherd, Jesus keeps his own sheep eternally. Oh, we would not understand this point in the least if we had not just read John 9. This man in John 9 who'd been healed had no hope for a future. He couldn't look down the road and say, yes, I can be a a fruitful part of this synagogue. Why? He'd been kicked out. He's done. Well, Jesus directly changes the mindset here. Let's look at uh, 10, 27 through 30. Your homework this week is to dig deeper into these four verses. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, I give to them what kind of life? Eternal life. They will never perish. This is a good point right now, a good time for a bit of commentary. This is basically the strongest negative construction that you can find in the Greek New Testament. Some of my Greek brothers here, particularly one I had a great fellowship with this week, Mike Peasy. This is a construction, who may, plus a subjunctive for those who like this. It's found in a couple places in the New Testament, and it's basically the strongest negation you can possibly write. And here it is: I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. You can't do anything about it. The way it's constructed, even it just proves its own point. You, You will never perish eternally. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay, so I've got you. But beyond that, there's something else. There's like another layer, if you want to put it this way. Another layer of security. What's the other layer of security? Would you look with me at verse 29? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So there's like a double layer here. I love this. And then he finishes out with this dynamic statement that led to a clear reaction from these Pharisees. They wanted to stone him after he says this. Here's what he says I and my Father are one. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's just step back for a second. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we look at this story unfold, we're not going to be snatched from this flock as we come to Jesus Christ by grace through faith. He's got us. You're not going to get out of this flock. Brothers and sisters, you can't jump out of his hand. He's got you. So much more can be said about this, but here's the clear point I believe in this passage is you're not, going to be, you're not going to be kicked out of this flock. He's got you. He's your shepherd and he cares for you. He might suffer a broken leg and you might be carried by this shepherd. But you know what? This shepherd's got you. All right, so what does Jesus dynamically said in John 10? We rush through this. He's dynamically said a couple things to a couple different people. To the to the self-righteous religious leaders misguiding Israel, what did he say? You didn't kick this man out. I led him out. You think you're all that? You thought you kicked him out. Nope, you didn't. I led him out of that fold. All right, what about to all of the people observing this? Everyone else observing this? Here's what he says I am the true shepherd. Don't look any further. I am the true shepherd who is drawing my sheep into my flock. And what about to this man whose life had systematically been the worst day and the uh, the best day and the worst day? Here's what he's saying In your time of need, I care for you. He's saying this, my loved sheep, you weren't kicked out. You were actually mine, and I led you out. And I will lead you to the very end. I led you out of this formalized, man-centered, legalistic approach to life and into the intimate, grace-saturated relationship with the Good Shepherd. So what? (laughs) Let's close it out. What's some takeaways today? I think we need to ask this question very clearly. Very, very clearly today. Are you following the Good Shepherd? You. Not the person down the row from you, but you. Not the person on the other side of the congregation from you, but you. Are you following the Good Shepherd? First aspect of this, as we pointed out, is this following to eternal life. So much that we could just focus on this. I know we've focused very evangelistically the last couple weeks on this. I'm not going to belabor this point. But the question is this. Are you following to eternal life? Have you been led out of a formalized, man-centered, feel-good type religion into an intimate, grace-saturated relationship with the Good Shepherd? If not, would you respond in faith today? Today? This very day, before you leave this building, would you call on Jesus Christ to save your soul? Would you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and experience the salvation that only Jesus can give you? In just a minute, we'll pray. There'll be those at the front who would love to talk with you more about that. I'm not going to make some big deal of it. Well, they'll be up after the service too, our chaplains. Would you come pray with one of them? Ask some questions. Maybe it's something you need to go home and wrestle with a bit more. Yes, do that if you need to, but don't delay. Listen. The shepherd's calling your name. Let's think about another aspect of this very quickly. Are you following the shepherd to abundant life? Not life without pain or struggles, but a life that is daily being led and fed. A life that is daily finding pasture. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are you following the good shepherd today? He's leading you to pastures. Are you one of those stubborn sheep that's bouncing off the fences? Are you one of those sheep that are like, yes, I will follow you. You're leading me to nourishment. Brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, young and old, if we don't leave here today in courage, something's wrong. Because we have a good shepherd And this good shepherd knows his sheep intimately, he loves his sheep sacrificially, he calls his sheep personally, he leads his sheep graciously, and he keeps his own sheep eternally. Let's walk through these doors as we leave today overwhelmed with how amazing our good shepherd is. As our faith is tested, we must fix our eyes on the good shepherd. So God, I pray that this would be real to every single one of us in this room today. Every one of us are going through different stages of trials in our own lives, struggles, just as we talked about last week. Lord, I want to thank you for how you've shared with us in John chapter 9 through your Holy Spirit of this beautiful example of a good shepherd that cares for us in our time of need. He draws us out. And I pray, God, that you would help us to so love the shepherd. As John also says in other texts, in his epistles, his letters, we love him because he first loved us. Oh, God, I pray that we would have an unwavering love for the shepherd because he had an undeniable love for us. And drew us out. We are his own. Friends, this morning with your heads bowed, eyes closed, we're not going to belabor this. I'm going to close with a word of prayer in just a minute. As the, as the piano is playing, the keyboard's playing this morning, would you in turn to just maybe a minute or two of prayer as we close out the service in prayer? First prayer, would you pray this in gratitude? Would you thank God that He's the Good Shepherd. There may be some wrestling right now with your eternal destiny, with where you're at in eternity. With the Savior. I'm not standing here to talk you into a relationship with this shepherd. I'm here to tell you it's there. I'm here. I'm here to show you that Jesus is altogether beautiful. Would you respond to his call today? The piano is playing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Full in His wonderful faith. Things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. This is a whole passage consumed with the grace of a good shepherd. If you have come to Jesus in faith, would you daily live in gratitude for this gracious relationship not that we're driven by some self-centered moralism, make our own selves feel good, but that we've been drawn into a relationship with a good shepherd that knows us. He leads us. He calls us by name. And he holds us on, holds on to us for all eternity. What he has started, he will dynamically finish. I want to thank you, God, for this passage today. Thank you for the tenderness of your people that came to worship today and to study, and I pray, God, that you would help us to leave here so encouraged by your, your good grace, your kindness is seen in this story. And in this phrase, I am the good shepherd, this statement, let us meditate on this all week. Let us shine brightly the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us hold high the good shepherd. Let us live differently because the shepherd has changed our lives. Thank you for the grace we see in this passage. And as we close out with an anthem of grace to you, I pray that it would come from hearts of gratitude and resolve. We pray this all in Jesus' name.